0: Well, I want to do a little review. I know some of you weren't here last time. But for those of you that were, I'll just do a little review for you as well. We had left off on slide 12. And this is where I was giving a summary of what it means to be filled. In fact, let me actually back up one slide. We were talking about being filled by the Spirit. And we looked at Ephesians 5.18, where Paul had said, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And what I did is I showed, first of all, the contrast between being drunk with wine. Remember, many of the ancients would use alcohol or drugs to contact the spiritual realm. We know that, for example, from Ephesians 5, where one of the sins of the flesh is sorcery. And so if you're in the flesh, you're often prone to doing sorcery. The term for sorcery was pharmakeia, which is where we get our term from pharmacy from. And the idea was that the ancients would use these drugs or alcohol to get into an altered state of consciousness so that they could directly contact the spiritual realm. And I think this would have been particularly relevant in Ephesus since not only did they have the cult of Artemis, they had Dionysus, the god of wine. And the god of wine was also known as the god of religious ecstasy, interestingly enough. And so I think many of the pagans probably had a background in that culture where they would use wine to contact the spiritual realm. What Paul is saying is, no, that's not how the Christian operates, but instead we are to be filled by the Spirit or with the Spirit. And so the idea then is at the end of the day we're going to be dominated either by debauchery or we're going to be dominated in our thinking by the doctrines of Christ. And so we defined being filled with the Spirit using three Ds. That being filled with the Spirit means that we are dominated, first D, by the doctrines, second D, of Christ, rather than the debauchery of the world. That's what being filled with the Spirit means. Now, we showed you a parallel then. We said, hey, what does it look like to be filled by the Spirit? Well, very interestingly, Paul tells us, remember in verse 19, this is Ephesians 5, 19, the very next verse, we're to speak to one another in psalms and spiritual songs, verses 22 through 27, husbands love your wives, wives submit to your husbands, and then when you get to chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, children obey your parents. Now, the reason I cite that is because there's a parallel in Colossians 3.16. Remember how Colossians begins in chapter 3. Colossians 3 begins by us focusing, Paul says, on the things above where Christ is, not things on the earth. So where is our mind to be? Not on the fleshly desires, but rather the doctrines of Christ. That's Colossians 3.2. So this is about what happens in our mind and so when you get to verse 16, Colossians three sixteen, he says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Stop there. What's the word of Christ? Well, that's the Bible. That's what we have now in the Scriptures. Now, we know that this is the word of Christ. You could also call it the word of God. But we know from 2 Peter 1 that it's also given to us, what? By the Spirit. That it was the Spirit who inspired the biblical authors. And so the Spirit... The Spirit's knowledge that comes to us is through what? It's through the Scriptures. So we are to be filled, therefore, with the knowledge that comes from God through the Scriptures. Notice he says, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, sing with thankfulness in your heart. Well, doesn't, let me pull up my pointer, isn't that admonishing one another with psalms and hymns sound a lot like what happened in verse 19 of Ephesians 5? Well, it does. When you get to Colossians 3:18, wives are to submit to their husbands. Colossians 3:19, husbands are to love their wives. Colossians 3:20, children are to obey their parents. So what I'm showing you is that there's a parallel between Colossians chapter 3:16 through 20 and Ephesians 5:18. They are synonymous. Now, why is that important? Because you can say then to be filled with the spirit is synonymous with letting the word of Christ richly dwell within us. So again, if you and I are indwelt by the scriptures of Christ, is that not a good way of saying you and I are filled with the Spirit? Exactly. It's the same. Okay, so that's why I like the slogan, to be filled with the Spirit is to be dominated in your thinking by the doctrines of Christ rather than the debauchery of the world. Again, remember, if you're filled with wine... It leads to debauchery, which they render here as dissipation. Debauchery is asotia, literally living that is in keeping with not salvation. So, so the verb for salvation or being saved, they add an alpha privative in the noun, asotia, that's dissipation or debauchery. So, debauchery is living as a pagan, but being filled with the Spirit is to live according to the doctrines of Christ. And by the way, I'm sorry, I'll go for about a half hour, then I'll open it up to comments and questions once again. So I'll get through this material. So that's what I laid out last time. And I left off on this slide where I wanted us to see that being filled with the Spirit means to be dominated in our minds with the doctrines and the righteousness of Christ from His Word. So being filled with the Spirit is not an experience of euphoria, It is not some later ecstatic experience that happens once and for all that then changes the rest of our life. If that were indeed the case, Paul would not have used the imperative command in the present tense, be filled. The present tense, certainly it shows us a generic command, but it also implies the idea of ongoing action. This is something that we're to continuously do well, if you were to head for some second blessing that would happen once in your life, Paul certainly wouldn't have used, I don't think, the present tense. Second bullet point that I put up last time was the command to be filled in the present tense, again, implies ongoing action. This precludes this future momentous experience. It's not an experience, being filled with the Spirit, but rather it is for the believer to be focused on the doctrines of Christ rather than the doctrines of the world. That's the idea. So think about the term filled. We see it all through the scriptures. It means to be dominated by in your thinking so that you can't think of anything else in, is some, of the, in some of the usages. That's the implication. For example, Luke 5.26, people were filled with fear. Now when they're filled with fear, it means that they are so dominated by fear that in some sense they lose their rational thinking. And if some of you perhaps have gone through experiences where you've been filled with fear to that extent. Um, when I was an airline pilot, the reason we trained over and over and over and over and over for engine failure, um, to this day, I can, if, if I was in a twin-engine duchess, here's my engine failure procedure. Mixers, props, throttles, flaps, gear pumps, identify, verify, feather, dead foot, dead engine. Wow. I have it down like that. Why? It's how many years? It was in the 90s I was flying a beach duchess because if you can't do it by muscle memory, the fear takes over. That's the idea. And so the idea then is that you're filled with fear means you're dominated by it. If you're filled by the Spirit, you're dominated by the doctrines of Christ. Are we going to be filled with rage? Are we going to be filled with jealousy? Are we going to be filled with lust? That's debauchery in Ephesians 5.18. But if you're filled with the Spirit, your mind is consumed with the doctrines of Christ. You're living for His kingdom, not the fleeting pleasures of the world. That's what the call is about. So we see all over the scriptures. the idea at Luke 6:11, Pharisees and scribes are filled with rage. You see, five, Acts 5:3, 5, Satan filled Ananias' heart to lie. He was filled with a desire for money rather than godly living. Acts 5:17, the high priest was filled with jealousy towards Christ's apostles. It dominated their thinking. They no no longer even thought correctly. Acts 13.45, the disciples, on the other hand, were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. That's the call for all of us, not just some of us. Now, with that, what I want to do is turn to what it looks like to be filled by the Spirit. And the first thing I want to mention is I want to talk about John 15.26, where we see the primary effect of the Holy Spirit coming is to bring about the testimony of Jesus Christ to bring about the confession of Christ. That is the primary role of the Holy Spirit. But I want you to remember that in context of John 15, 26, where this promise is given, you have this promise that Jesus is going to be leaving his disciples and he is going to ascend into the heavens and in the heavenly realm he's going to prepare a place for us that is in the New Jerusalem. So remember in John 14, he says, "...in my Father's house there are many rooms." If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. So let's stop there. Where is he going? He's going to heaven. He says, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. So stop there. Is that us dying to go to be with him? Or is that him coming for us? It's him coming for us. This is a rapture passage. I will come again, bring you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. It's a rapture promise that he is going to bring us to be with himself so that where he is, which in the heavenly realm, we'll be there also. Quick aside, remember in 1 Thessalonians 4, it says Paul, excuse me, Paul says that the Lord will descend with the shout of the archangel. And a lot of post-tribulationalists will say, well, yeah, but when Christ descends, he just keeps coming down. Right? He, He descends in the clouds. Doesn't it say that? Well, he just keeps coming down. He sets up his kingdom. Well, then, what do we do with John 14? Jesus says he's going to bring us to himself. Where is he? He's going to be in heaven. So when does that take place? My, my point in raising this is this is a rapture passage. It's the idea that we have this great hope. But there really is. But in the meantime, this great bridegroom, Jesus, is the great groom. And so how many grooms in that period had told their brides, I'm going to go prepare a place for you in my father's house, and I'm going to come and get you again? What would the groom do at that point? To comfort her so that she knew he was good for it, that he wasn't going to just abandon her, the groom would send her gifts. Ephesians 4, 8 through 11, who ascended and gave us gifts? Jesus did. Jesus is the one who ascended And it says, and as he ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. What's the greatest gift that he ever gave? The Holy Spirit. And from the Holy Spirit, or by means of the Holy Spirit, we're given every other gift. That's what's being depicted. And so when you get to John 15, what I'm showing is that being filled by the Spirit means we confess Christ. If you're not confessing Christ, you can be sure that we can't determine whether or not that's a work of the Spirit. John 15, 26, Jesus says, when the helper comes, by the way, that's the parakletos. Remember, in the original culture, that would be the defense counselor for the wealthy family. So that's who this is, the, the Holy Spirit. When the helper comes, whom I will defend to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. So what's the role of the Spirit coming? The testifying of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you a little story that has in some sense biased me against charismatic and Pentecostal teaching, but I'll explain why. My wife and I met at one day years ago. I was a brand new Christian. I think her and I, we may, have been just, we may have been just dating at the time. I don't remember. It was so long ago. But we met a woman who, her name was Barbara, and she was at the restaurant. We were sitting outside, and I remember this woman was talking to us, and she heard Debbie and I talking about the Bible, and she was interested in it. Now, she was unconverted. She was not a believer. She had a Jewish background. Well, I brought her to a church that, at the time, I didn't know my theology very well, and so I ended up bringing her to a Word of Faith church that's very charismatic. And what I was hoping for is that she would hear the Word of God, the doctrines of Christ, who Christ is, what He had done, why we need Him, how to receive Him. I was excited for her to hear those things so that she may be saved. But instead, when I showed up, the man who was speaking stuck his head in a fern bush, telling him that's what the Spirit had told him to do. Now let's ask ourselves, according to this definition, remember, Barbara is an unbeliever, and there can be the confession of Christ from the pastor, which would have been a work of the Spirit. But instead, because they were being Moved by the spirit according to their theology the man said he heard directly from God and he wasn't going to be disobedient He stuck his head in the fern bush Well, Barbara thought we were all crazy she never heard about the doctrines of Christ from that man and So let me ask you was it at the work of the spirit? Well, I don't don't think it was okay, so That's the idea, then, is when the Spirit comes, He brings about the confession of Christ. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 John 4, 2. 1 John 4, 2. How do we determine if something is a work of the Spirit? How do we know which Spirit is from God and what is not from God? 1 John 4, 2 gives us a great hint. By the way, as you turn to 1 John 4, 2, remember the issue that John was wrestling with was probably something called docetism. Docetism comes from the verb dokeo, which means to seem. And the heretics in John's day were saying, Jesus was truly God, they were right with that, but he only seemed to be human. So instead of having the God-man, truly God and truly man, they had a God, they were right there, but who only appeared to be man. So they had a different Christ. Now doesn't Paul warn about a different Christ Christ, a different spirit and therefore a different gospel. In 2 Corinthians 11 he does. And so this is absolutely essential that they had the right Christ the one who's come in the flesh who was not just truly God but also truly man as well. Truly God, truly man. So notice what John says, by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. The confession of who Christ is. So if a Mormon comes and says, "Well, my Jesus is the spirit brother to Lucifer," that is not a work of the Spirit. Why? Because it's a different Jesus, and because you have a different Jesus, you have a different Spirit. Therefore, you have a different gospel. You're anathematized, cursed of hell. Paul says. Paul says, if anyone, even an angel from heaven, should bring a different gospel than the one I preach, let him be anathema, cursed of hell. Well, let's take a Jehovah Witness. They have Jesus but their Jesus isn't truly God. No, that's not Christ. Christ is truly God, Amen. come in the flesh. How do we know that the Messiah, by the way, from the Old Testament was to be truly God? Doesn't Isaiah 9.6 say that he would be? Isaiah 9.6 says, remember, unto us a son is given, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Amen. How can he be a man who is born and yet be Mighty God? Because he's the God-man. Isaiah 9, 6 was predicting that the Messiah, when he comes, is truly God. He's called El Gabor. Gabor is mighty or great, the mighty one, a hero. El is God. He's the mighty God, Isaiah 9, 6. So certainly, Christ is to be truly God and truly man. And so, if his person and his work is not confessed accurately, then you don't have a work of the Spirit. Why? Well, let's look at it again in verse 26. What will he do? He will testify about me. That's the role of the Spirit, and that's why He's the greatest gift ever given as the Son ascends, because those who will trust in the testimony of the Spirit, they're going to be sons and daughters of the Most High, and they will be partakers of that glorious kingdom that Christ is preparing for us. That's the idea. Now, let's look at Acts. What happened when people were filled by the Spirit? Well, let's look at Acts 4, eight. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people. And what he goes on to do is to preach Christ. He preaches the doctrines of Christ, who he is, what he would do, the mighty salvific acts of God. So that's what happens. Now, let me go to Colossians 1, nine. Being filled by the Spirit also means that we grow in the knowledge of Christ. We see this idea in Colossians 1.9. Where Paul says, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you. That's because of their salvation. And to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why are we commanded to be filled with the knowledge of his will? Well, so that you and I will be conformed to the image of Christ. So that you and I will think and act like him rather than the world. So notice... It's in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's what we're called to do. If you're filled by the Spirit, it doesn't mean you stick your head in the fern bush. It means you think as Christ would want you to think. Okay, so think about in Romans 12:2. This is a great passage to jot down. Doesn't Paul say to us, it's a command, so it's from Christ. Remember, Paul's an apostle. He speaks for Christ. He says, do not be conformed to the image of this world but be transformed, metamorpho, where we get our term metamorphos, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So that's exactly what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Are you going to have a mind that's transformed? Notice the term for mind in Romans 12, 2 is naus. It has to do with our intellectual faculty. So the idea then to be filled with the Spirit or to be filled with the knowledge of His will or to be filled with the Word of Christ... Means that you and I have minds that are changed, so that we think as Christ would want us to think, rather than the world. And again, all these things are synonymous with being filled by the Spirit. Uh, let me give you a little analogy. One thing I realized that happens sometimes in Scripture. I remember studying eschatology for many years and being confused. One of the reasons I was confused for so long is I would read good teachers, I thought, and they would always distinguish between things that I later found out were synonymous. So, for example, they would say, well, the coming of Christ, the parousia, is different than the day of the Lord. Well, why does Jesus say that he comes like a thief, his parousia? That's in Matthew 24. And then First Thessalonians 5, we see that the day of the Lord comes like a thief. Well, if one were to precede the other, one would cease to come like a thief, So when you start putting the data together, the 70th week of Daniel is precisely the parousia. It's a complex event. Many days. In fact, in Luke 17, it says that the days of the Son of Man, plural, is synonymous with the parousia, the coming of Christ in Matthew 24. That's what we see. So the point is the 70th week of Daniel is the same as the parousia, which is the same as the day of the Lord. All those things are synonymous. They're not different. In the same way, I think we make too much of when it says be filled by the Spirit in that somehow that's different than being filled with the knowledge of God. They're synonymous. That's the point. We have to see these synonymous relationships and they're all over the Scriptures. Let me show you another one. I want to talk about how I think the burden of proof for those who hold to the second blessing doctrine, the burden of proof is on them. What I'm going to show is that there's only one type of Christian, and that is those who have the Spirit. The second blessing doctrine proponents have to say there's actually two types of Christians. There are those who may have the Spirit, but they don't have the fullness of it. Some even hold that some don't have the Spirit, and others do. What I'm going to show you is that there's only one group of Christians, and that every Christian has the Spirit. Notice John 7, 39. Again, this is right after Jesus talked about the living waters coming from us. Right here, John gives a parenthetical comment. He says, but this he spoke of the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. All right, so let's ask ourselves the question, who's going to receive the Spirit? Notice, whom the, those who believed in him. So those who believed in him were the ones who are going to be given the Spirit. Well, that's every Christian. Okay, now notice here in Romans 8, 9 again, Paul said, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So notice the logic. If we deny this antecedent, or excuse me, the consequent here, if we negate this, notice it says he does not belong to him. Let's just say he does belong to him. Well, that means he does therefore have the Spirit. That's a logically valid inference. So if you belong to Christ, therefore you must have the Spirit. Does everyone see that? So what does that mean? What well, it means every Christian has the Spirit. Now, the debate is, well, how much? But again, if we go back to Ephesians 5.18, what's the point of being filled? Well, if being filled is synonymous with letting the Word of Christ richly dwell within us, being filled with the knowledge of God, so that we're dominated in our thinking by the doctrines of Christ rather than the debauchery of the world, well, then we realize, well, that's for every Christian, too. Are some Christians to think like Christ, or are all Christians? Are some Christians called to obedience, or only... Are some Christians, or all Christians? It's all. Right? So, that's what I'm showing you. Is it's time and time again. I don't see where it's some and not all. Think about this, Ephesians 2.18. says, For through Him we both... You might say, well, wait a minute, we both? That's two. We both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Well, wait a minute. What is the we both? Well, in the context of the passage, is both Jews and Gentile believers. And so Jew and Gentile believers, meaning every believer, has access to the Father, what? In one spirit. It's over and over again. 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, the passage that kind of started this whole thing, where it says, For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks. Again, that's the big category of their day. What was shocking is that the Spirit would come not just upon the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. It's on everyone, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one drink. So again, we see that it's not for some Christians, but it's for all Christians. Now, one thing I want to point out is some have claimed that we are in fact lacking. That is, some of those those who hold to the second blessing doctrine claim that Christians are lacking in empowerment of the Holy Spirit in their lives for ministry or holiness. Well, if you hold to a one blessing, meaning every Christian has the Spirit, we see instead that all Christians are empowered by the Spirit for holiness and service. So let's just simply ask the question, where in the Scriptures does it show us that some Christians are lacking because they're not filled with the Spirit? Well, let's look at the data and see if we can conclude that no Christian is lacking. In fact, turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 6. Let's begin there, and let's see if there are some Christians who are lacking, and therefore they should desire more. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 4 through 6. Notice here Paul is thanking God for the salvation that they have in Christ. He says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God... This is 1 Corinthians 1, 4. I thank my God always concerning you for the space of God, excuse me, the grace of God, which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him. Notice, stop there, in everything. In everything you were enriched in him. In all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, Now, as we put up verse 7, notice on the screen, what's the purpose of them being given this grace in Christ? Well, notice we have a purpose statement. Or you could say it's a result clause. They're really one and the same. So that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting? We're not lacking any gift as we're waiting for Christ to come. So the irony is in 1 Corinthians 1, 7, Remember, the gift giver, Christ, is up in heaven making a place for us. We're eagerly waiting for him. This is a passage where we eagerly, eagerly are awaiting the rapture. And so what he says here is you're not lacking in any gift. The term lacking there, hustero, means just that, that you are not without. So who is that for? For every Christian. Every Christian is not lacking in any gift. So says the Apostle Paul... Who speaks by the Spirit. Who is inspired by the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to write what he wrote. So the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is telling us that no Christian is lacking in any gift. Notice in the box the term gift there is charisma. The very spiritual gifts that he ends up talking about in 1 Corinthians 12. So wait a minute. I thought those who hold to the second blessing doctrine are saying some Christians are lacking some empowerment or some gift that they need for ministry or for holiness. But that's not what the Spirit says. The Holy Spirit says you're not lacking in any gift. Which way are you going to go? Are you going to go with the words of men who say you are lacking or I'm lacking or they're lacking or someone's lacking? Or are you going to go with the Apostle Paul who's inspired by the third person of the Trinity? Because... The Spirit's telling us that we're not lacking in any gift. Let's turn our Bibles to Ephesians 1, 3 through 4, and maybe we're lacking in some spiritual blessing. Well, we'll find out the Apostle Paul says we are not. Ephesians 1, 3 through 4. Ephesians 1, 3 through 4. Notice here, Paul says, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love. How many spiritual blessings were believers given as they were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world? Every. Pas in Greek, all. So therefore, what are we lacking? We know we're not lacking in any gift, 1 Corinthians 1, 7, but maybe we're lacking in a blessing. Well, not according to the Spirit, who inspired Paul to write Ephesians 1-3. We're not lacking any spiritual blessing either. Okay, so again, are you going to go with the words and the doctrines of men? Or are we going to go with the doctrines that come from the Holy Spirit? By the way, in Jeremiah, I want to have you turn to this, but jot down the passage, Jeremiah 31, verses 33-34. In that passage, what's very interesting is the promise of the coming Spirit would lead to this. Let me read you verse 34, Jeremiah 31-34. He says, "They will not teach again each man saying to his neighbor, "Know the Lord." He says, "For they will all know me." How many are going to know Him? The Lord when the Spirit comes? All of God's people, whether you're Jew, whether you're Gentile, whether you're Moses or one of the 70, you're one, whether you're one of the 70 or you're part of the congregation, whether you're the lowliest or the greatest, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ. Being brought by the Spirit, you're gonna know Him. It's all. So we have all blessings, we have all gifts, and that all of us will know the Lord as a work of the Spirit. Well, what about our work? Certainly, we need to be empowered by the second blessing. They add, they advocate the second blessing proponents that we have to have the second blessing if you and I are going to be able to do the good works that God has called us to. Well, let's read 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17, where it says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Verse 17, here's the result, the purpose clause, So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for how many good works? Pass, every good work, for every good work. So let's think of the list that we've seen thus far. We know all Christians have the Spirit, Romans 8, 9. How many Christians? All. We know from 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen that all Christians have been baptized in the Spirit. How many Christians? It says we were all baptized. All. Let's ask ourselves the question, are any Christians lacking any spiritual gift? According to 1 Corinthians 1, 7, All Christians have every spiritual gift. What about every spiritual blessing? Ephesians 1.3, every Christian has every spiritual blessing. What about being equipped for every good work? Well, again, the spirit who inspires the scripture says we're equipped for every good work. So what are we lacking that we would listen to a second blessing doctrine or proponent well, of course, we're not lacking in anything. By the way, where did the scriptures come from? They're inspired by God. He's the agent. But it's by means of the Spirit. We see the same thing. Second Peter one twenty one: No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So the irony is that here you have the Spirit giving us the scriptures, and they tell us that we're equipped for every good work, while second blessing proponents say, you're not equipped for every good work. Well, which are you going to go by? You're going to go by the words of the Spirit revealed in the scriptures? Or are you going to go by the teachings of men? I think that that's the challenge we all have to take very seriously. The Scriptures don't say some Christians have and others are lacking. It's all Christians have all of these things. every spiritual blessing equipped for every good work that you and I have all that we need in Christ. Okay, so let me come to some objections. In fact, I'll um, I'll just go five more minutes and I'll open it up here. Let me handle this Luke eleven thirteen. Luke eleven thirteen. This is a common objection for those who hold to the second blessing doctrine. It says, "If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him?" The implication in this text is that these are men who are following Christ. They must have belief. And so how did they have belief? Well, it's by the Spirit. But yet, they're called to ask for the Holy Spirit. And so for the second blessing proponents, this is the idea. Aha, here we have a text where we have some Christians who must have been brought to Christ by the Spirit. And yet, they're commanded to ask for the Spirit. Well, let's ask ourselves the first question, is this before or after Pentecost? It's before. Now, why is that a big deal? Because Pentecost changes everything. I want you to think about elsewhere in Scripture. Are we commanded to pray for the coming of Christ? We are. In fact, we'll look at that next week in our sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. It's an imperative. It's asking for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. So we are to pray for the coming of the Lord. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 16.22, at the very end of that verse, Paul says, anyone... In fact, let me read it to you. I have it right here. He says, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed, Maranatha. Maranatha is a term that's coming right from the Aramaic. It means, come, Lord. Come, Lord. It's a, it's a, it's a request. Come, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. Think about Revelation 22.20. Jesus says, he who testifies to you says these things. This is Jesus. He says, yes, I am coming quickly. By the way, the adverb quickly means imminently. It brackets the whole book of Revelation. Revelation 1.1, 1, 1, the things that must take place imminently. Revelation 22.20, he's coming imminently. Imminence dominates the bookends of Revelation through the adverb and the noun takus, which means at hand or imminently, Soon. Okay, but notice right after that, then John says, Amen, come, Lord Jesus. It's an imperative. That's Revelation 22.20. So here's the question I'd like to ask you. When Jesus comes and we're reigning in, with him in the kingdom, are you and I going to still be praying for the coming of Christ? I don't think so. Because that will have already occurred. The second question I'd like to ask of this text is how significant is Pentecost. And here I want to show you that it's those who hold to Pentecostal teaching, ironically, that are the ones, they're the proponents of the second blessing doctrines. There's many versions of it. But ironically, those to hold to type, the types of teaching that Pentecostals do end up underplaying the significance of Pentecost. Because remember, it was Peter himself who said at Pentecost, according to Acts 2.16... That Pentecost was a fulfillment of Joel 2:28 through 32. Listen carefully. Joel 2:28 through 32 gives you the entirety of the last days. Let me show you how. Let's look at Joel 2:28. Peter says in Acts 2:16, "This is a fulfillment of this." It's a fulfillment of this promise written some 900 years prior to the coming of Christ. Joel 2:28 through 30. It says, "It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind." Let's stop there for just a moment. Does all mankind mean every single person so we have universalism? No, it probably means not all people without exception, but all people without distinction. In other words, Jew and Gentile. Not just Moses, but all of God's people, as he said in Numbers chapter 11. Remember, he says, oh, that all of God's people would prophesy. It's not going to be just Moses or some pope or magisterium. It's going to be all of God's people. That's where we have the doctrine of the priesthood of every believer. And your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And then notice verse 30 I will display wonders in the sky and on earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. Well, let's talk about this for just a moment. When did this happen? When did the Lord pour out his spirit? Look at our chronology down here. We have the Old Covenant. We have the coming of Christ and the sending of the Spirit. Here's Pentecost. The Spirit's poured out here. That ushers in the last days. But isn't it interesting, when you get to verse 30, when are these wonders with the sky filled with blood, fire, and columns of smoke? Well, that's in the 70th week. That's the last of the last days. So it's interesting, in verse 20 through 30, you have the whole last days bracketed. The whole last days, the whole epoch of time The whole period is bracketed in just, what, three verses. Now, how do we know that this blood, fire, and columns of smoke happens in Daniel's 70th week? Well, let's read Revelation 8, 7 through 8. I'll read it to you. This is, by the way, the first trumpet judgment. It says, the first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown down to the earth. Revelation 9, 1 through 2, this is the fifth trumpet. It says then smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. So in the 70th week of Dan you'll have blood, fire and smoke. That's the end of the last days because after that Christ reigns. So in the, the great passage in Joel 2.28-32 what Peter's saying is hey this is being inaugurated now. Why? Because the Spirit's being poured out. He doesn't say that all of it's being fulfilled but it's being put in motion. Alright let's keep reading. Joel two thirty one through thirty two. It says the sun will be darkened and it turned into darkness, and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Stop there. When does the great and awesome day of the Lord come? Well, that's at the seventieth week of Daniel. Remember, this is exactly what Jesus cites in Matthew twenty four twenty nine. It's the very end of the seventieth week of Daniel. It's right here. So in Joel's teaching, he links it to the last days, which begins at the beginning giving of the Spirit, and it ends in the final battle surrounding Jerusalem. Notice it goes on to say, and it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. Let's just stop there for the sake of time. Notice this, and it will come about whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. Peter cites that at Pentecost. Do you know the whole point of his sermon? Is Jesus is the name of the Lord that you should call on if you want to be delivered. That's the point of the sermon. And how does he prove it? The resurrection. I mean that's what he does. So here's the idea. We have this huge epoch of time that's changing at Pentecost. That what is being ushered in is the last days. That is exceedingly significant. And I think those who hold to the second blessing doctrine and Pentecostalism, they yawn at it. As if Pentecost is something that just happens every day. As if when Moses met with God at Sinai, well, that's something that just happens every day. No, that was a huge shift in an epoch of time. That they went from no nation belonged directly to God and all of a sudden there was a theocratic kingdom and God met the leader of it at that time, the mediator of the old covenant on a mountain. And so are we to say, well, hey, let's just all start meeting on a mountain. After all, it's normative. And so here's what I'm challenging everyone to think about is how significant is it this Pentecost where Jesus says pray for this good gift and you'll receive it. And sure enough, it happens at Pentecost. It's huge. Pentecost is a huge shift in the epoch of time. And if you and I don't perceive that, we're yawning at the data. And we're being wowed by people's claims. But yes, these disciples who did pray, because they had not yet received the Spirit, they did receive the Spirit in power. At Pentecost, ushering in the last days, which will culminate... In the return of Christ and the setting up of his kingdom, that's the significance of what Joel is telling us and what Peter's citing is fulfilled in his day. So with that, I'll be quiet. I want to show you then at that point, that I think clearly that objection that somehow in Luke 11:13, you have some believers who are asking for the Spirit, meaning that they're going to have some second blessing, is certainly not valid, but rather it's fulfilled. In Luke Acts, at the term or excuse me, the time of Pentecost, the time of Pentecost is what fulfills that very thing. So, with that, um, I'm going to open it up to comments and questions. Uh, yes, Steve, and then I know we had um, another one over here too as well. Yes, Steve. By the way, it is Carly's birthday today. She's 28 years old. Happy birthday! Yeah.
1: And so I. Often like to look at the flip side of the coin. You can you can see through Scripture that there's other people referred to as being you know it, I think Peter said to Simon the sorcerer, "I see that you're filled with evil and greed." And there's yes. a filling of people who aren't born again. And there there's instances where they are filled with you know um, evil or greed or those types of things. Yes. And they're just. <clears throat> Being, we're, we're just being who we are. Yeah. They're being Amen. who they are. That's they don't have to ask for more of that. They're just naturally being, you know, un, you know, an unregenerate sinner. And That's it, right. we were all there at one time. But the, I was looking at um, when the Lord changes us when we're born again. He this pouring out. Yeah, it's in um, Titus. It talks about how he's the watching of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out. I looked up the word pouring out. It's a gushing. Yeah. He, it's like standing in front of a fire hose. He doesn't limit it at all. He Amen. doesn't save a little bit for later. It's all <laughs> gushed out, and we're changed. We're washed, and we're brand new. This is, and, that, and that's, to me, that's like who we are. I mean, you know, it takes, we're, we go through the sanctification process, obviously, but he, the Holy Spirit has been gushed out at Amen. us. Amen.
0: You know, and that's it's, Titus 3.5, correct, that you're looking at right there? 6, yeah. Yeah, so Titus 3, 5, and 6. So it's interesting, Titus 3, 5, and 6 is teaching much the same that John 3, 5 is teaching that you must be born again, born of the Spirit, right? Born of the Spirit and water. And what did Jesus say in John 7? That if you are come to him, living waters will gush forth out of you, right? Um, in Ezekiel 47, when Messiah is reigning in the Jerusalem temple, you literally have living waters that will come and they'll give life to the Dead Sea, no, and that's right. Because we're equipped for every good work, Amen. By the Spirit, yes, Amen. Yes, Paul.
2: Yeah, uh, the point, um, the overarching point is that you were asking if there is a difference. Uh, I believe I understand you to say, was there a difference of uh, within the uh, believers, them, the group of believers? Is there a difference? In other words. Okay. Now, here are three quick points. I'm sorry. Um, which,
0: which believers is this? Um, what passage are you referring within
2: to? Within the kingdom of God, are there differences of believers? Okay. Okay. That's gotcha. okay. So, those who are uh, believers
0: in Christ. Right. So you're,
2: yep. Okay. In other words, I'm not questioning the sufficiency of his transformation from inside out. Sure. Totally. I, yep. I got it. Okay. okay. Gotcha. Three, three quick points. Number one, and I would ask for your clarification on these. Yeah. Uh, in us, but not of us. Um, and the uh, next one is there's this malefactor who wrote this thing called Dining with the King and that we all know and love. Yeah. However, uh, I think in his reference to communion, there are those who are eating and drinking to their own damnation. I realize it was an economic thing, poor and rich and all that kind of thing. So sure. if you could clarify that a little bit, because there does seem to be a difference uh, between the rich and the poor. I mean, you know, those... Who are drinking to their own damnation. And so on and okay, so I'm forth. I'm sorry, head. what was the
0: first one? Paul, I mean, hit the him first one. one time. was in us, but not of us. Okay, and that maybe comes from, you may be thinking of this John uh, fourteen, sixteen through 17. Is that the one you're thinking of? I
3: think it's with
0: us. He abides with you and will be in you. Is that the one you're thinking of?
2: I, I, I don't know. I don't think so. Um, okay, so when in us, but what's but interesting is.
0: One of the things that we see in the Scriptures, the Spirit is given after Pentecost. You know, Pentecost. I'm sorry. So prior to Pentecost, you don't have the giving of the Spirit. Let's just look at this real quick. John 7, 39. Notice it says, But this, again, John says, He, that's Jesus, spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Okay, so what happens after He's glorified? Well, He says in Acts 1 that as he ascends, what is he going to give to them? Well, he is going to give them and send them the Spirit. So the sending of the Spirit is the fulfillment of that. And so you don't have two types of Christians, one that has some of the Spirit. Uh, The idea is whether or not this is prior to Pentecost or after. So one of the distinctions that I think is made here is you have really two paracletos. You have Jesus is the first helper. In fact, we know that because he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. Well, wait a minute. Who's the first helper? Who's the first paracletos? Jesus. 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 Right. So if Jesus is with us and he's the one who is endowed with the Spirit, doesn't he say, he cites Isaiah 61 and he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor. So he is abiding with us because Christ is with us. But one day at Pentecost, he will be in you. And that's the distinction that, yes, in some sense, through the work of the Messiah, he, by the way, the term for abide here, with you, we have the with you here, is the, the, the preposition para. So how many here have ever heard of a paralegal analyst? They're the ones who come along the regular court officials. Or paramilitary, they're the ones who come along the regular military, so the idea is that he's alongside you, but future tense will be in you. And that's what happens at Pentecost as we have this filling. And so that is the way it is for all Christians that we have the indwelling of the Spirit. Um, the second one, what was the second one again? Oh, Let's stick on this one real okay. quickly.
2: No, maybe we are going on to this. You are, maybe you're right. Yeah. On what that was one. the second one that reminded me? Second the second one was uh, okay. I think oh, when judgment Bob at was the the eating and drinking with the king, that. Um, yep. And it even goes back to the one before, where uh, I think it's in the letter of Paul somewhere with yes. those who were wolves in sheep's clothing who slipped into the group. You know.
0: Yep. 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 So you're talking about apostates. So those would never be genuine believers. Correct. So the on, idea in 1 Corinthians, Corinthians 11... Chapter
2: 5, verse 12, it says, who are we to, to uh with unbelievers? But for believers, we better use our head, what's going on.
0: Right, so the issue in 1 Corinthians 11 is you had one group of believers excluding another group of believers from the Lord's Supper. So right. the, the, re, the way they were to examine themselves, Paul gives a very straightforward answer as to what does it mean to judge oneself so that you're not drinking judgment upon yourself. I think it's 1 Corinthians 11:33. He says, "Therefore, wait for one another." Now why, would they, why were they to wait for one another? Why was that the remedy? The remedy to not drinking judgment upon yourself in abusing the Lord's Supper is to wait for one another. Because the supper that they were celebrating was to be the Lord's. As Bob rightly points out in that beautiful article, the Lord gets to decide who's at his supper. He's the one who died for them. He's the one who purchases all believers. But yet you had some Christians who were saying, we're wealthy, we're going to be in the atrium, or excuse me, the triclinium, but we're going to have our own thing going and the rest of you poor people are going to be out in the atrium while we're having our own thing. And Paul is saying, what? You're divorcing other brothers and sisters from the table that Christ purchased with his blood? So that's precisely why the remedy to it is to wait for one another. So you don't have two levels of Christians, but rather you have some that were sinning merely because they were not recognizing that all Christians should be part of the table. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, but okay. I, agreed. I, point very taken, good. very well done. Yeah. But just the idea that at some time or other, there are some people who just don't get it yet. Although maybe they're just not quite there, they haven't quite got yeah. it. I can
0: answer that. Yeah, absolutely, Bob. Bob's got, um, well we've got a microphone. For I was going to give you mine. I'll find out. Okay. Yeah. That's that's an important statement.
3: Um, I had to re uh, research a whole bunch of stuff I did in the 90s for this video shoot that someone did. And I was rather nervous about it, but I did a lot of research on it. Here's a, a caveat. I wrote an article saying there are no Uh, extraordinary Christians, but being an ordinary Christian is an extraordinary thing. Here's the caveat. There are distinctions, but no one will know how well until the Lord comes, right? So there are people who are building with gold, silver, precious stones, doing a great job, but we may not know who they are. And there are others who for whatever reason are not using their gifts well, that we, we saw in First Corinthians chapter 4. The caveat is this. Only the Lord knows the motives of the heart. So what happens in church history Amen. is that people gravitate to the obvious, the, the charming, the articulate, the yeah. person that can draw the big crowd, the person who has everything we wish we had. And we assume they're the extraordinary. And if they're a Christian at all, They wouldn't wish to be known that way. And there are others that we don't even know what they're doing, and they're serving in an extraordinary manner, and we neglect them. So, and I'm going to preach on this today, so I better save something for the real sermon. (laughs) But in 1 Corinthians... We're making the judgment before the time. Yeah, amen. Because only God can judge the motives of the heart. Only God knows what has been given in the sense of special gifts that some have, others don't, or whatever gifts we have. Yeah. And that he can judge. Amen. But we tend to judge with unrighteous judgment. Amen. And therefore, the people who are the godly people. I saw that uh, when I was interviewed. It just brought back to my mind. I was in a, a perfectionistic group that claimed you could find perfection now if you only did things a certain way. I saw people at the end of that who were feeling hopeless on their deathbed in their 90s, having served God and as far as I could tell were some of the Kindest, decent people I've ever known, and they said to the other pastor, and I was a, a young man at the time—that was a long time ago. Uh, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? Where did I fail? And we looked at it, this happened at least twice, yeah. more than that. Grandma, you—you you know, serve God. You didn't do something wrong, because what's dangled out there is if you really get it you're not going to end up in the hospital you're not going to be sick you're not going to get old you're not going to die and she this dear lady knew that she wasn't perfected so if you have a perfectionist group yeah and you're judging before time that some didn't quite get it then those poor seeds End up on their deathbed with lack of assurance because they 've been dangled something that wasn 't valid right and the honest ones are always going for counseling because they think I failed I failed i 'm not good enough yeah. dear ones we there are extraordinary people
0: serving God, yeah. but only the Lord knows who they are yeah absolutely That's my let me just, i'm sorry joy i 'll come to you right after um, let me just In
2: response hit. To what Bob said. So-
0: you're going to go on then never mind. Um, I just wanted to hit this this last verse cuz this was an objection that I've heard from those who hold to a second blessing doctrine and one of them is John 20:22. 20, it says when he had said this, he breathed on them, this is Christ, and said to them receive the holy spirit. And for the second blessing proponents, the idea here again is that you have some second blessing issue regarding receive the holy spirit. What I'm going to show you is that this again, demands the question, did Jesus ascend yet? Now, why does it matter whether he ascended or not? Well, let's read John twenty seventeen. Jesus said to her, this is when, it's one of the women, they come to him after he's been raised. He says, stop claiming, clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Now, why is that important? Because John seven 39, let's back up. Why didn't they receive? They are going to receive the Spirit, but why hadn't they? For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Okay, so let's let's go forward again. Let's put these all on the table. John 20, 17 is the morning of the resurrection. And Jesus is saying, I haven't yet ascended, therefore was he glorified? No. Of course he wasn't glorified. Of course he hadn't sent the Spirit. Well, where does John 20, fit in? That's the evening of Resurrection Sunday. This is the morning and this is the evening. So if Jesus hasn't, been, hasn't ascended yet and therefore hasn't been glorified and couldn't therefore send the Spirit according to John 7, 39, which is inspired by the Holy Spirit, then why am I wrong when I give the answer when He breathes on them? He says, receive the Holy Spirit. That's a foreshadowing of what will happen at Pentecost. Again, why does this have to be future at Pentecost? Because the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So if we're going to be good readers of the Spirit-inspired Scriptures, that has to be the way we understand it. We can't just read into a meaning that we like because it fits our doctrine. We have to read according to the way the authors were inspired by the Spirit to write. Authorial intent is the issue. I'm sorry, with that, Joy, did you want to hit something? I think we got a minute. No, We, um, well, we can talk afterwards, too, so... But anyway, I wanted everyone to see that that that's a core issue. Jesus had not yet been glorified in that. So, okay, let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our time together. We thank you for the doctrines that you've laid out clearly through your scriptures that none of us are lacking any gift, any spiritual blessing, or the ability to do any good work that you've called us to because of the spirit that's been given to all of us. We thank you for that truth. I pray, Heavenly Father, for Bob as he preaches... And shows us that you're the one who ultimately judges the motives of the heart. And Lord, we want to live lives that are pleasing to you. And I pray, Lord, that we'd be convicted of ways that we're living that aren't pleasing to you. I pray, only, Father, you do that through the word. That we'd be not just hearers, but doers of it. We thank you for that. We pray for Bob and our time together with him. In Jesus' name, amen. All right.